Our scripture tonight is from Acts 8, verses 28 through 40. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thanks, Kirsten. So I want to introduce you guys to Tyler Bacher and his wife, Chloe, Chloe Bacher. They are uh, taking the risk of having him preach when baby Bachers do, like what, in a week or? Less. Less than a week, <laughs> yep. Uh, so it was, uh, this was the week for it, and we're just like, well, we'll just hope that it works out. Um, so if you want to ask about my first impression of Tyler uh, years ago, you can sometime. I won't tell it in front of the church, but uh, great, great guy. I'm really excited to have him preach here. That's actually how I... Uh, first saw him was was preaching. Uh, he's going to be our pastoral resident at Capital City Church, and so we're still defining exactly what that role looks like, but he'll be preaching for us regularly, maybe every four to eight weeks, as, except for, you know, when baby comes. Um, so we're just looking forward to that. Um, yeah, welcome him, and we'll give it away to him. Here we go. All right, thanks, Jordan. I'm glad to be able to be here tonight. I'm glad baby Bacher has waited, and hopefully she'll wait for about 25 minutes more. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just realized when you were describing kind of the sermon series coming up, uh, we're jumping entirely out of sequence, and we're going to the end of Easter and doing that before Easter, so why not? But anyway, you can keep this in mind when you hear more about the Easter story in the upcoming weeks. Uh, but I'd like to start tonight uh, with a confession of sorts. Uh, sometimes in life, we all just totally miss the point. And that's me in relation to this passage. You see, when I was little and uh, little Tyler heard this story for the first time, uh, I want to give him some credit. He probably understood that there was some importance to the Ethiopian man coming to Christ and being baptized, but there was something at the end that caught his attention far more than the rest of it, that made his eyes go wide and blew his little mind. It was that Philip got teleported. And that's all that stuck in his mind for about... 24 years and a few months. 
And so up until really this year when I was called into the preschool room to teach this passage for the first time instead of just reading it, it dawned on me, surprisingly enough, Philip gets teleported isn't the point of this passage at all. But it's significant. This passage is significant to the history of the church. So before we get into why that might be, uh, this is your chance for you note-takers to get some notes down for the day. You can pull out your lyric sheet, find the sermon title, and you can add to Philip gets teleported, the rest of the title isn't the point at all. But then what is? In order to get to what the point might be, we need to get kind of a crash course on the beginning of Acts and just a little bit before Uh, We can go back before Acts and we can see uh, in the Gospels Christ's life, death, and resurrection and his great commission that he gave to his disciples to go out into the world and to preach his good news to all people. And then he ascends into heaven. Which brings us to Acts 1, where we find the disciples all kind of chilling, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, not wanting to make too much of a ruckus. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes, they're absolutely jazzed about the gospel, and they go proclaim it to everyone they can see. Peter is the most notable of these as he proclaims that the thousands and thousands become followers of Christ. The movement explodes. It's just kind of an amazing time. But just as soon as this has started, intense persecution comes. Stephen, one of the best in their number of early Christians, uh, is stoned in the streets. And we see this figure of Saul come out and become this intense persecutor of the church. And then we get this story. And then right after this story, we have Paul meets Christ, or Saul meets Christ, becomes Paul, and becomes one of the best apostles known to the church. And so this passage seems just a little out of place, right? Like, there's all this bombast going on around it, and then here is this story of just a single convert in the desert. But this passage changes the world. And we can start to see that in verse 26. So I'm just going to recap certain parts of the passage so that we're all on the same page. So verse 26 says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He, came, or he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot while he was reading uh, the prophet Isaiah. So these few verses give us the context to understand why the rest of this passage ends up being so significant. We can start with Philip. He wasn't an apostle, and he wasn't one of the original disciples of Christ. Instead, he was a person, one of seven, who was nominated to go be an evangel to the entire region. And so Philip had actually just been in a town in Samaria uh, where he'd been evangelizing, and it had gone so well that the entire uh, town was just filled with joy. They were dancing in the streets. It was amazing. So it must have been kind of an odd uh, instruction to receive from the Spirit to say, hey, things are going great here. How about you go to the desert? But he did. And that's where he meets this man from Ethiopia. And we know some things about where this man is from. Uh, Ethiopia, geographically, uh, is a little bit uh, different than where you would see it on a map today. It's more in modern Sudan, directly underneath Egypt. And it was known for having the Nile run through it, uh, providing sustenance to the land, and also throughout the ancient world for its dark-skinned people compared to everybody else. Ethiopia was also tangentially involved in the story of God's people. We see Moses' wife and Solomon's bride in Song of Solomon were both from 
Ethiopia. But there's one other interesting thing to know about Ethiopia uh, that is particularly pertinent to our story today. To the ancient world, Ethiopia was the end of the earth. And it wasn't without good reason. One commentator actually did the math on it and put it this way. If, he covered, or if the Ethiopian man covered an average of 25 miles per day, his trip to Jerusalem would have taken anywhere from 48 to 60 days, and a round trip would have been 96 to 120 days. So yeah, about the end of the world. But regard, besides the fact that he was from the edge of the world, what else do we know about him? Well, we can see that he's powerful. Within ancient Ethiopia, uh, the king was seen as a deity, unfit to do anything that a normal monarch would do, so the queen was an effective ruler of the land. And for our Ethiopian friend, the fact that he was in charge of all of her treasure means he's about as powerful as he can get within the region. We also see that he's wealthy. He's riding in a chariot. Almost no one could own one. Everyone walked, but he rode. He also had a scroll with him. And besides the fact that the parchment that would be used to be uh, written on is far more scarce than the paper we would have today, its real value comes from the fact that someone had to sit down and find the entire book of Isaiah and write every single word meticulously and perfectly across the whole thing. So you can imagine that that got expensive. But the fact that he had his scroll also reveals that he was educated. He was able to read the scroll. He, uh, not, literacy rates in the ancient world were very low. And so the fact that he had to read it, or he, that he could read it, meant that he was educated far beyond the average person. So to recap, we see that he is powerful, and he is wealthy, and that he is educated. You'd think this guy has about it all, except for this. We can also see that he was ostracized from religious life and practice because he was a eunuch. In many societies outside of Israel, eunuchs were preferred to hold roles in a monarch's court. It was quite common uh, for a male who holds a position in the government of a queen or an official over the king's harem to be a eunuch. I'll let you draw your own conclusions as to why that might be the case. But we also have sources that within these lands that accepted eunuchs, the eunuchs still felt uh, regret for their position and also social expulsion from the societies that supposedly accepted them. This was a step further in Israel, though, where God's law to the Israelites forbade them from letting uh, a eunuch into the community of Israel. Now, part of this entire excommunication is that they couldn't go and worship at the temple. The temple had uh, several rungs, uh, several courts of kind of exclusivity within it. There was one for the priest and one for the men and the women and the Gentiles. And he couldn't even get into the one for the outsiders because of his status. So this might seem uh, a little bit harsh, but it seems that this rule was put in place so that uh, Israel wouldn't create eunuchs, so that no one would be damned to their fate. So despite all this man has... He is an individual who suffers greatly and is an outcast from everywhere. But there is hope found in Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. It says this, To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, to those or who chooses what pleases me and to hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord and to serve him 
to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring to the holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So we, don't, we can't confirm for sure that the Ethiopian man had read this passage, but considering he had the scroll of Isaiah and 120 days to get through it, maybe he did. And if he did, he would have experienced great hope at the idea that maybe at some point he'll be brought into God's kingdom. Which brings us to the last thing we can know about him. He was dedicated to finding and following God. Somehow where, somehow along the line, he had heard about the Jewish God and decided to try to follow him. There is evidence that Judaism had influence in southern Egypt, so maybe he found it that way. But either way, he chose to follow God. He may have been physically unable to become a part of the Jewish people and could not join in their religious practice, but he seemed to fear God and do what he could. So he took this arduous journey all the way to Jerusalem, even though he couldn't worship in the temple, so that he could do at least what he could. But when he got there, he probably heard some interesting things. Because this wasn't all that long before there had been a man who was calling himself the Messiah, who had been executed, but also there are rumors that he had risen from the dead, and there was an earthquake and an eclipse. You better believe that he heard some of that, and he must have had at least some things to think about on his way home. So let's contrast this to get the full picture to Philip. He is a part of God's people, but he is not powerful or wealthy or probably very educated. But led by the Holy Spirit, he walked up to this ox-drawn chariot, looking and probably smelling like a man who had been walking through the desert. Here's the words of Isaiah being spoken and joins the Ethiopian man, which we see in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now here's where I'm going to take just a side note because it's, it's too good to pass up. We can learn a couple things from the posture of this Ethiopian man in this situation. We can see that he has the desire to learn about God's word. Despite all the obstacles, he is desperate to understand the word of God. But he's not satisfied to just do it himself. He understands that he needed help to learn well. Despite being educated, he was willing to seek help from an unlikely source in understanding God's word. Which brings this application to us. I I hope that we all have a desire to learn about God, but sometimes I think it's far too easy for us to make it just about us and our Bible siloed off from any other influence. But I don't know about you guys, there are plenty of things that I find in the Bible that I am terribly confused about. (laughs) And sometimes there are things that I think that I know that maybe have a better answer for them. And so the best chance that we all have at finding the truth of God is to not only study it ourselves, but to do it in community and to allow wise sources to inform us, to help us understand truth. And so as Capital City Church, as we start our small groups, as we dig into God's word, let's approach them with a spirit that's willing to receive correction and to learn together about God and what he wants for us. But I digress. To summarize, uh, the, to summarize, the Ethiopian man desperately wanted to know God and was humble enough to receive help. And we see in the next several verses what he was reading. In verse 32 Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. For who can describe his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, To whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So this short passage that we see the Ethiopian man reading is part of the larger uh, modern chapter of Isaiah 53. In the first century, Jewish people didn't interpret this passage to have anything to do with the Messiah, only Israel. Hence some of the confusion on the part of the Ethiopian man. But in retrospect, looking back on it, after the life of Christ, it became far more clear what these prophecies pertain to, which Philip obviously explained. Undoubtedly, the Ethiopian man had read at least that chapter, if not far more, uh, and Philip would have walked him through it. Now imagine Philip walking in on this chapter, which happens to recognize a messianic figure who would not be recognized by the people as such, who would suffer to death even though he was innocent, and that he would take the sins of the people on himself so that he might save them and count them righteous. He must have thought, this is it. (laughs) This is perfect. Because, hey, guess what? This chapter and all those rumors you're hearing in Jerusalem are about the same person, Jesus Christ. And not only that, I have even better news. He rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And even better news, he did this for you. Now, obviously, we can't know exactly what Philip said to the Ethiopian man, but eventually Philip covered enough ground to answer the age-old question, what must I do to be saved? And seemingly, he gave a similar answer to what Peter did in Acts 2, that the the Ethiopian man should repent and be baptized, which we see happen in verse 36. And as they were going along the road, uh, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went away on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and and as he passed through, preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea." The beauty, the poetry of this passage is that this man who had been for his whole life so thoroughly excluded from the community of God was now the first outsider to be baptized into the new covenant and community of God. He went from being entirely ostracized to being more than a son to God, as the Isaiah passage said. This adds in my mind so much more weight to when he asks to be baptized. It wasn't just a factual response of, oh, this is something I must do. He was practically diving into this water. He was finally getting what he had searched for for so long, to be a part of God's community and in a relationship with God himself. As Jerome, the early church father, said, the Ethiopian man found the church's font there in the desert rather than in the golden temples of the synagogue. And with his baptism, we see the first Gentile convert to Christ, who happens to be just from the ends of the earth. This sets the precedent for what is to come. 
Jesus may have commanded that his good news go out to all people, but this is the first instance of it actually happening, let alone to someone from the ends of the earth. So we can see that this sets the precedent and that the church didn't simply stumble on the idea of evangelizing to the Gentiles. It did so according to God's direct purpose. And yes, we got to this part of the story. Philip did get teleported. God did it to Elijah too. It's per, the verse is pretty unambiguous that God swept him up and teleported him to a town roughly 20 miles away. That must have been quite the sight for the Ethiopian man. What a day he had. And so we don't know much more about uh, the Ethiopian man, but what we do know is that he went home praising God and joyfully uh, expressing that to God, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not crazy to assume that he wouldn't have been able to keep it inside when he got back to where he was from. Regardless, Christianity spread wildly throughout the Ethiopian area, and until the kingdom itself was declared as Christian around the same time as the Roman Empire was. So I think that is a truly beautiful story. But what does that mean for us now? And if, there is, if I could distill it down into one point to just emblazon across the stage in like marquee lights, it's this. The message of Christ is for all. It doesn't matter of what ethnicity you are or where you're from or what socioeconomic level you are or what kind of education you have received. The message of Christ is for you. And if you've ever questioned that, if there's ever been something in your mind that you think precludes you from letting the message of Christ be for you, hear the message of this passage. It is for you. Christ's death and resurrection took on your guilt before God and made it possible to be in the right relationship with God. That is for you. Don't doubt it. We can infer another thing from this. As Christians, not only is the message of Christ for us, but the message of Christ is to be brought to all. It doesn't matter who the people are. It doesn't matter how seemingly unlikely it is that they would receive his message. We are to bring the gospel to them. And finally, once we've repented and trusted Christ and been welcomed into his community through baptism, let us continue to pursue God and his wisdom as the Ethiopian man did. Let's join together and continue to grow and learn under God and with each other in community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you did uh, all that you have done uh, through your son. We thank you that you sent him to earth to die on the cross to save us from ourselves, and that you didn't make that for just a select group of people, but for everyone. God, let us make that personal to us. Let us accept that that is true and turn to trust you and pursue you with all we have. Let's leave today joyfully like the Ethiopian man did too, knowing that we are counted more than sons and daughters in your eyes. We thank you for all you've done and for your love. In your name, amen.